Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. So Kim, I just wanted to thank you for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles to speak in regards to uh, family councils. So before we start, can I just get you to tell us about yourself and about the Vancouver Island Association of Family Councils? Um, well, my own entry into this, uh, to this world was uh, uh, my, through my mother. She developed Alzheimer's and so on. And so uh, we went through that uh, agony of, you know, trying to figure out what best way to manage and so on. And uh, we ended up inevitably, because my dad uh, passed away around that time as well, yeah. uh, having to take her into long-term care, you know, at the advice of, uh, of uh, doctors and so on. And, um, and when I, when I went to the facility, it was a gorgeous building, beautiful furniture, and there were gardens everywhere and all this kind of thing. And so that the guilt and the worry that I was feeling, you know, was, I was learning how to manage that first of all. And then, uh, I got to know a few of the staff and they were wonderful. And, uh, so I convinced myself that, well, this is going to work. Um, but then what happened, you know, once you get inside, I thought, well, give you an example, the same staff that, uh, you know, I thought were just so wonderful. Well, I'd have new people showing up and I found myself kept, keep having to explain, you know, my mom's situation, what, what to watch for and all this kind of, so there's staffing instability and, um, and the gardens uh, couldn't be walked through by residents because there weren't staff to you know, make them do it safely and all this kind of thing. And then I got to fast forward uh, a little bit later, and uh, the the entire healthcare staff was fired three times in four years, you know, through contract flipping. And so we lost complete continuity of care and, uh, you know, staffing shortages and et cetera, et cetera. So during that process, I had heard about family councils because I wanted to have a voice in what was going on, you know, as did other people. And so we started up a family council and worked hard to um, <clears throat> try to get our voice heard. And, and uh, to the company's credit, they stopped. You know, we were pressuring them to stop this contract flipping and so on. They did that, but there were other issues and so on that carried on. Um, and so then I thought, well, you know what, there's, um, there are systemic problems here. It's not that particular facility. It's ingrained in the system. And uh, so what I did was I, I connected with like-minded folks in uh, Victoria. And uh, we got together and we decided that uh, there's, there would be a value in having uh, the ability to have a systemic look at long-term care to find out how many perceptions and experiences are being shared, you know, throughout our health authority. And I think there were uh, probably only about five or six of us individuals who were starting this thing out. Uh, fast forward later, we um, developed our terms of reference, our goals, our philosophy, and so on. And now we have a collection of uh, family councils through, I think, 13 different municipalities on Vancouver Island now. And so what that does is it gives us the, uh, the opportunity and the ability to instantly determine what's working well systemically in long-term care and what's, what's not working well. And, um, 
I remember <laughs> perhaps naively thinking, well, we're going to be a tremendous asset, you know, for the health authority and for the Ministry of Health uh, to, you know, give them feedback, to tell them what it is that we are seeing as canaries in the coal mine kind of thing. Uh, turned out that the, especially the previous government, they weren't terribly interested in, you know, our opinions, our feedback, because sometimes the feedback um, provided um, kind of in, inconvenient realities, you know, and brought them to the later day. So anyhow, now we have the um, Vancouver Island Association of Family Councils, and um, <clears throat> we've been contacted by other councils in other health authorities. Um, we're interested in doing the same kind of thing, but it's, but it's tough slogging without support and help from the Ministry of Health. Thank you for that. And so what other organizations that you have or family councils that you have worked with trying to establish and as well with the local health team? Um, in terms of our advocacy efforts? Yes, your advocate. Yes, the advocacy efforts. Well, you know what? It's um, when, it, when you have the, the general public, they, they hear about, you know, say our efforts and so on, but they don't. They don't know what situations are until they experience it personally. And so currently we have, uh, um, you know, all kinds of uh, care catastrophes that are going on because of COVID, but they're, they're because of things that we've been worrying about for years. And so now, because it's, uh, you know, hit the headlines and so on, we have, there are different groups uh, sort of, um, emerging in, in different ways and we're all starting to talk to each other. Um, but that speaks to what I think is um, one of the fundamental problems of the, of the uh, system. Um, when I look at long-term care and we've examined across Canada and it's similar in other, other jurisdictions as well, long-term care has kind of a um, a system where it's a, a bilateral partnership between governments and people supplying the care, you know, the, and many of them are, are for-profit facilities. And the people who should be in there are almost systemically excluded. And that's the very people that are sending folks into long-term care. And you have to remember too that, um, one of the things that, that we saw happening uh, was that the, the acuity level in long-term care, the level of medical need has gone up and up and up in long-term care because what's happened, I'll just use BC as an example, is uh, higher functioning residents who could advocate for themselves have been moved into assisted living and and there's more home care services and so on so what you're left with is people who are you know one of the most vulnerable groups in the province because they're largely unable to advocate for themselves and so in that kind of setting then you need uh friends and uh, you know family and other persons of importance to them to have a voice in decisions that are being made in long-term care and that currently is not happening. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. We're getting a lot of pushback, you know, from the industry 
And uh, we had pushback from the previous government. We've had expressions of interest in the current government out here, but still no action on it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I know that back in, I think it was 2014, 2015, your group um, identified some major roadblocks in terms of supporting residents, and that was primarily the marginalization of family councils, as well as staffing and disability. And what were your recommendations at the time? And with these two roadblocks, obviously, this is now coming to pass during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um. You know, I spoke about the bilateral, bilateral uh, kind of arrangement uh, that, that exists now. It was a number of years ago. Um, Daryl Plekas, who was the um, previous government's um, uh, parliamentary secretary for seniors, he, he released this document that was created by the industry and by the Ministry of Health. And they were talking about uh, staffing concerns. And so <laughs> the document crossed, you know, uh, our vision of sight. And I looked at it. And I, I, so I sent a note to, uh, to them saying, look, had you asked us, we would have identified these staffing issues as well. And it had to do with instabilities that were creating, you know, loss of continuity of care, staff shortages and a lot of people in casual lifts and so on. And we came up with uh, four or five really, really important things that weren't even on their radar. But we were not invited to that conversation and we were not invited to the planning, you know, moving forward and so on. So that's an example of um, one thing that's come back to, to haunt us now. And I can tell you too that um, it was in May of this year, <clears throat> we, um, we sent a note to Minister Dix, and we were talking about our concern about staffing issues, uh, instabilities and shortages, and practices like having um, um, staff travel from one facility to another. And we were cautioning him about that, but we've been doing that for years too. But in BC, nobody is required to listen to us. Um, so those those things go back, uh, you know, a long time. And I was uh, telling you earlier, I think that we, um, you know, we've made a proposal to change all of that to guarantee uh, family members to have a voice in decisions that are being made in terms of policy and in terms of uh, service delivery in each facility. And um, everybody in, um, in the health, current health authority expresses a lot of interest in our ideas and some really good ideas. In fact, we had um, the um, uh, parliamentary secretary for seniors of the uh, current government say, what you're saying is right. We are gonna recommend it to uh, Minister Dix for implementation and that was quite a while ago now and still we have nothing so yeah just one of those many challenges but it's just interesting that your you know your research revealed that many years ago prior to the pandemic that that would still be an outstanding and important issue at this time now 
going to the pandemic, like with the family members, the essential caregivers for the most part have been pretty much locked out. And uh, many family members have been very frustrated at the lack of communication from the facility as to what's happening, um, you know, how the vaccination rollout is going. How valuable would it have been for at least family councils to have been established in a lot of these um, facilities and for family councils to be legislated by the provincial government um, and to be used as communication avenues for these facilities? Well, tremendously valuable. Um, you know, when, uh, when people go into long-term care, it's, there's a huge learning curve uh, for family members, you know, who, and friends and so on, who are, um, who are accompanying them, you know, who are trying to advocate for them. And, um, you know, truthfully, what happens, unless they have something like a family council to, to say, look, these are your rights, these are your opportunities, here are some good ideas for you to consider trying to promote your facility and so on. They figure things out just about the time that their, their loved one is dying. You know, and then you have a whole new batch of people and so on. So that's one of the things that a family council can do. Um, you mentioned the, uh, the COVID situation and uh, uh, the visiting. This, this is another uh, unhappy truth that in June, um, the Ministry of Health, Ministry of Health and uh, BC Care Providers Association um, had uh, engaged in a partnership to do something called uh, Equip Care. And what it was, was a, a system of targeted funding that they were making available to facilities to make sure that things were safe from the virus point of view for residents in care, okay? So the letter that we sent to Minister Dix was that, look, if you had asked us, what we what we'd have, would have said as well, is make sure that there's funding to have protocols in place so that you can have safe visits. Um, one of the reasons is that many of these family caregivers are essential. They're not visitors, they're caregivers because they've been in the practice of helping feed and you know, providing exercise and everything else. Um, but they were ex completely excluded in the discussion. And and you look at the cost now, um, there's a, a legitimate perception that keeping family members out of there is an act of cruelty. You know, and it's, it's not happening to strangers, it's, it's happening to people's wives and husbands and fathers and friends and so on. And it just, it just makes no sense that, uh, that the collective community voice would be excluded still. Um, so that's why we're um, still pushing to very hard to make that happen, but uh, not yet. It's still, I guess, a work in progress. And, and the other thing that you mentioned that with uh, family members, sometimes, you know, their loved ones do pass on, but they still want to participate within the family council. Do you have anything in terms of with your terms of reference that will still allow someone to still be part of family councils? Um, I, I'm glad you mentioned that actually, because, um, my own, my own mother passed away a number of years ago now, 
but it, it's such a an important community issue, and I've got a lot of friends who, uh, you know, have somebody in care. So, you know, I'm I'm a pretty good resource for them because I've been there. I know what other thing works, and so on. I can provide them with uh, you know important advice. Um, it's the timing of your question is is uh, interesting because yesterday I got a a message from uh, somebody in uh, Fraser Health. And uh, she, she was the chair of the council, and she just an amazing woman, just a heart as big as a room, and uh, smart. And um, she did all the right things as chair of the family council. What she tried to do was to, as is a goal of every family council, you want to build partnerships with the staff and with management. So collectively, you can look for the best way to find quality of care within resources that are available. You want to have that voice in there. And she had that approach and so on, but there's always pushback. In fact, in that facility, the manager wanted to run all those, all those meetings instead of a family member. Um, unhappily, her, um, her loved one died. And so now there's been a quick move on the part of management to say, well, you're out of here. Okay. And, there's not a single reason why that would be good for all the residents in, in the facility. But there may be a reason why it's convenient for management, you know, and that's the, that's the awful part of it. Um, I can give you a, another <laughs> dramatic example. <clears throat> Excuse me. Here on the island, we had... Um, um, a facility in Central Island and a facility in the North Island, the one in the Central Island, there were all kinds of uh, pretty serious care issues going on. And there was an independent family council there who was bringing those care issues, care concerns, uh, to the attention of uh, the health authority. And there was another family group in the North Island who was meeting off-site because the facility manager up there wanted to run the meetings, you know, they didn't want that to happen. And part of it is because, um, you know, family members fear reprisal. Generally, they're afraid to complain. And if you have private discussions where you can identify strengths, but also find out things that you think are wrong, that's a place to have them. Anyhow. Uh, what happened in those facilities was uh, finally Island Health got involved and they had a look at what was going on and they took over operation of three of the company's facilities on the island alone and they ran it for about three months. And um, the, um, one of the interesting outcomes of that was that a senior official in Island Health commented that to the family council that was meeting off-site saying, if we had seen minutes of these meetings that you had a year ago, we would have stepped in then. Okay. They were almost had to meet off-site, they thought. Okay. Fast forward, the operation of the facilities is returned uh, to the uh, company. And uh, within days, I got a call from the facility in the Central Island saying, look, here's what's going on. The facility has given us brand new terms of reference 
to replace the terms of reference that were written by the family members. And they also wanted to appoint a, a facility person as a chairperson of the family council. And so <laughs> the obvious reaction was that, so that means that uh, agendas, discussion, recommendations have to be filtered through a company appointed chairperson and a company made terms of reference and so on. And we've brought that to the attention of the Ministry of Health and we still haven't heard back from them. So, you know, I, in a letter, it was maybe a little, little more bluntly worded. It said, it makes you look complicit in the efforts to silence what it is that family, family members want. So by, by not acting on it, by not guaranteeing um, through regulation that facilities can't do that. Um, you're, in, you're in Ontario, right? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so in Ontario, uh, you'd be aware that you have a, um, a network of family councils and a provincial body that supports the operation of family councils and so on. And that's the kind of thing that should be all across Canada. Um, there's a group in Nova Scotia who I've been chatting with who want to do that. There's a group in Alberta who want that to happen. And in both of those provinces, they have absolute guarantees that the family voice will be included in uh, decisions that are being made in long-term care, not in BC right now. And that's what we're pushing for here. So, and that's the importance of making sure that family councils is uh, legislated by the government. Because um, you did mention as well the uh, family reprisals in terms of not speaking up to, that's, that's a big one because family members are always afraid of what will happen once they do speak up. That's so right. they, they just prepare you know, they would just prefer to say, I had a good visit type of thing. And mm -hmm. can you just speak to us what the importance of making sure, of ensuring that family councils are, it's legislated? Um, well, first of all, it's not just, um, you know, an anecdotal kind of perception uh, of what you're describing. There's plenty of research to show that family members do worry about that, that very thing. And, um, you know, a lot of it is, is not necessarily rational, but never, sometimes it is, but nevertheless, it's real and it's not good for residents. There is um, abundant research to show too that, um, you know, having the family council voice in long-term care improves quality of life for residents. And, um, but that needs to be legislated in, um, to be honest, in BC, we have uh, about three lines that say facilities must uh, provide family members the opportunity to form a council once a year. Well, I didn't even know what a council was when I went into long-term care. And so who does that? Um, and in Alberta and in Ontario, they say it has to be independent. Managers are only attending meetings by invitation, which we encourage them to do all the time. Anyhow, you want to work with management teams and so on uh, and so on. But, uh, and so that's a, a really necessary first start. 
but the cost is always at the ex at the expense of residents when those things don't happen. So. Yeah, because currently right now in the province of British Columbia, the family councils it just set in the residential care regulations. Is that correct? And as you mentioned, it just has a couple of liners, but yeah. because the family councils doesn't have any. Um, I guess you could say teeth, so to speak, it's it's hard for them to obtain information from the operator. Let's say if they had a complaint and wanted to formally put that through, there's no guidelines as to, yes, you need to respond back in 10 business days or 10 days mm -hmm. um, to your complaint and to further assist to get changes to be made within that particular facility. I give give you another example of what uh, what it is that I'm talking about. In uh, we had one one of our councils uh, was noticing that uh, care aides, and they're the ones they're the frontline people who spend most of the time with residents. They seem to be used extraordinarily for doing things other than work with residents personally. And uh, so they ask questions about, well, how does that work? Like how many hours per resident, how do you report on that? And how, do, how is it monitored? And um, the same council was meeting offsite because, by the way, previous manager wouldn't advertise their meetings. And quite legally, able to do that. And uh, what they discovered was that uh, that did seem to be happening. They took it to Island Health. And I have the email, Island Health's reply was, well, that's not really the responsibility of a family council to look into, you know, hours per resident day. That's our job. Uh, they kept pushing it. And in BC, and this is one of the things that our seniors advocate brought to light, it's self-reporting on how staff are allocated. It turned out that, yes, these reports were inaccurate. And in the meantime, thousands of direct care hours were not received by, by residents. And so the facility was instructed to report in this other kind of way, uh, more accurately. And, but the problem was four years went by before it came to that point. And we brought that to the attention of our Ministry of Health as well. Um, now, what what cost to residents? And uh, that's that's an example of the outrageous kind of thing that can happen if you don't give family members a voice in decisions that are being uh, that are being made. And yeah, the decisions, by the way, are not just in facilities, but decisions that are being made health in the health authorities, and more importantly, in uh, Ministry of Health policy. Yeah, because I mean, in November 2020, in the report by the uh, BC Seniors Advocate, the staying apart, staying safe, um, she mentioned about the family councils that they're unique to each facility, but they have no collective voice to at the health authority level or even at the provincial level. And it was her recommendation to have a, a long term care and assisted living resident and family council association, um, indicating that this was very important, especially. In, in this particular pandemic, but there was no timeline that was given. So how effective is that in terms of a recommendation being made, but then there's no timeline given as to when that needs to be enacted for? Well, that's the, uh, that's the frustrating part of, uh, of trying to move things through government. I mean, ours, 
everybody has expressed a, an interest in the idea, and yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it seems to be lost somewhere in the bureaucratic jungle, and it just hasn't been a priority. And um, surely now it will be, you know, surely. And uh, you know, I, I we've often uh, thought that if you look at other vulnerable marginalized suffering communities across Canada, if you've got a government that wants to make things better, well, surely those very people <laughs> are the ones that you should include in finding a, a solution that's going to work. And it happens everywhere except in long-term care. And uh, that's what needs to change. In fact, um, I mentioned uh, folks that I've been talking to across Canada. That's one thing that's been on our radar in terms of uh, federal uh, kind of reaction to the long-term care issue now is that um, we're going to try to try our best to insert ourselves in that conversation somehow because it should happen uh, if we want the best possible outcome. I definitely agree with you there. And so then how does, how do people then get involved to make sure that this does become on the radar for the government and to make sure that they enact this? Like what do people need to do to get involved to get this done? You know what, we um, recently we had a little letter writing campaign to um, send our message again to the uh, Ministry of Health and to, uh, you know, all the parts therein. And um, I think that's what has to happen. I think uh, we need to, um, in our case in BC, tell Minister Dix, look, we've got to do a lot better than this. You know, people are suffering and this, the COVID thing has exposed all the weaknesses in long-term care. And we watch, you know, across Canada, we've looked, looked at best possible practices. And the unhappy truth is that long-term care seems to lurch from one crisis to another. You know, enough is enough. And we even looked at Ontario, you know, they've got the model of, um, of uh, you know, the family council organization there, and they're doing their part. But then over the last, uh, you know, few years, as I'm sure you would know that um, the provincial government stopped inspecting these facilities. You know, we had a look at, in um, 2015 and 2017, the vast majority of, ins of uh, facilities were being inspected every year, and these are comprehensive inspections. And then in 2018, the government decided to cut those in half, and in 2019, out of uh, well over 200 facilities, I think it was only nine facilities that had a comprehensive inspection. So that's the reason for the, you know, the, the crises that we've witnessed in Ontario. It's not family members, they can only do so much, but all those parts need to be engaged together in order to make the thing work. And these people who are in, in long-term care, I mean, these are people who built the country. It feels like, like such a betrayal not to do everything that we can to um, to provide the best possible um, you know service in long-term care. And let's not forget we've got an aging population. I have no plans to go into one of these places, but 
but we've got an aging population, a tsunami of seniors, so we've got to start getting this right. And that begins by listening to um, groups like family councils. Absolutely, I definitely agree because it's only going to be more and more as, yep. uh, as time goes on. And the fact that long-term care since pretty much the beginning of this pandemic has been in the conversation piece across the country from day one. And would you agree, would you agree that family councils needs to be part of this whole national standards that they're talking about and needs to be an actual stakeholder and part of that uh, conversation and as well to be a voice that we need to be listened to um, at, you know, at that type of federal level that not just, you know, the doctors, whatever other organizations or that you're going to be speaking with in terms of developing these national standards, but you need to look to look to the family councils and make sure that that is enacted across all provinces across this country. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's not like this is something new. Um, I'm a retired teacher. And uh, in BC, we have parent advisory councils in every single school in the province. And the reason those things are there is that parents in communities wanted to have a voice in some of the decisions that are being made in schools. And then there's a provincial organization that has a direct connection, of course, to the uh, Ministry of Education. And um, that's the kind of thing that we're after in long-term care. And, and it should happen. It should be, it should be ingrained in the, in the operation of these facilities. And, um, you know, <laughs> uh, sometimes we're cheeky. Uh, we pointed out uh, within the Ministry of Health they have embedded in uh, things like health authorities the opportunity for um, for groups, you know, concerned um, kind of employees to have conversations about what it is that they're concerned about outside of the earshot of their of their bosses. And they have those things in place. Put them in place for long-term care. My God, these if there's ever a need for it, it's there. Definitely, and thank you. I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles. You're very welcome. Speaking. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, you are most welcome. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.